2: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with L.D. and T.J. 2
3: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, L.D. Along with me for the ride this week is T.J. the Deuce. <laughs> and will the thrill i don't have anything to open i'm sorry i'm still prepared well our coffee maker just died yeah so that's no fun we're we're not happy uh
4: or, I, or i'll pay your coffee maker <laughs> yeah
3: yeah not the saddest thing that has died this week though um
4: no not by a long way unfortunately
3: we we, we are going to keep this at a a minimum because The deuce is going to be doing an entire episode on him, but this this week we we lost a great, we lost Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, and yeah,
4: that was um a a deal where even if you knew he was sick, which I had you know I'd read that he was, and there were some things that David Lee Roth had said earlier in the year that kind of tipped that maybe he wasn't doing great, but um still a shock. Um, if you're about my age and Will's age, um, it's. He was one of you the act coolest guys. Like I'm the guys. baby.
3: Will is three months older than me.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, right. That, that's, but that's a really important three months. It was a formative um, three months of tremendous growth and development. No, I, I really, um, if you're all about uh, in our age group, there a there was nobody with that level of virtuosity much that we got to see, mm-hmm. and there was also nobody cooler than him.
1: Yeah. I mean,
4: he looked, he looked, he looked awesome up on stage with the long hair and the cool guitars and making it do, do things that you almost can't imagine a a person being able to make a guitar do and sound like elephants and organs and motorcycle engines revving up and he could make it sound like the voices of people screaming and then just absolutely shred on it.
3: Yeah, well, uh, if you look, just to wrap this part up, because uh, I know we have to jump into the episode, but if you check out my Twitter page, or if you check out the Rock and Roll Heaven Twitter page, uh, you'll see the patent for, that he applied for with his guitar, and it is the coolest patent literally ever. So go check that out on Twitter. He, he, actually,
4: he actually holds three patents, believe yeah. it or not, all related to guitars, obviously. <clears> and then, <throat> you know, and like you said, we're, we're gonna come back and do an entire episode on him at some point. Yes, but don't you know, worry,
3: there'll be a whole episode. One,
4: because of when he came along and because of how talented he was, but I can argue he's the most influential guitarist to ever live. Yeah. So so that we'll, we'll, we will definitely come back to him in the very near future.
3: And who are we talking about? Well,
4: we're, talk? we're starting a series, are we not?
3: We are starting our series on since uh, if, if for those who are John Oliver fans out there, number one, woo-hoo, but uh it is spooky October. So it's spooky Ooh, season.
4: Paints and
3: boogers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So uh we are starting our series on the 27th club. Within this series, we're gonna be talking about Robert Johnson, who is who we're gonna be covering today. We are going to be covering Amy Winehouse next week. And who are you covering, Will? I thought I was doing Jimi Hendrix. You're doing I'm, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, Jimi Hendrix. All right. So we have got a good full oh, wow. Spooky spook coming up. And then we have the dealer's choice on November. Since the Deuce's birthday is in November, he got to choose the uh, subject matter. And it is going to be drum roll please which is appropriate
4: that's i was gonna say you've already that that pretty much says it doesn't it
3: yeah we're doing drummers
4: yes crazy ass drummers (laughs) yep
3: um i'm super excited for my series uh, well for my my episode on keith moon Mm -hmm. because i feel like he's my spirit animal
1: (laughs) he's like the prototype for the crazy drummer yeah he
4: is in fact he he was the the basis of animal from the yep yep the puppets wasn't he yeah So uh, So looking forward, looking forward to that. But yeah, we have a really interesting episode today and I'm going to tell you, this is doing the the research for this one in some ways was utterly fascinating. In other ways, it's the most maddening exercise you can imagine.
1: (laughs) Not (laughs) There's not so much there, right? Because
4: there's not, there's so little that's actually known about this guy that it can be authenticated that you end up chasing your tail a lot and you don't know a hundred percent what to believe. So we're just going to throw out there what we found and people can choose to believe what they want to, I suppose.
1: And, and there is a, in line of it being spooky October, there are some uh, myths and legends about him, if I'm not mistaken, that are tied to possible deals with the devil. And
3: Can I, uh, can yeah. I, can I talk about that though? Yeah. Because you wouldn't know about sure. this unless it was for the TV show that I got you hooked on. Uh,
1: correction. I knew about this prior to the TV show. Oh, i am well, go still... on record as saying that, but it is a big part of the show.
3: Yes. I'm still a winner.
4: <laughs> that, I, I didn't dispute that. All I'm saying was I did know about this prior
1: to the show. All
3: right, well, TJ, take it away.
4: Okay, well, it is difficult to tell the life story of blues man Robert Johnson. For starters, no one is exactly sure of his actual date of birth. He came from a family situation that was, to say the very least, complicated. Huh. Since his entire short life and career largely took place before the dawn of mass media, there aren't good accounts of where when, and how often he performed. There was in fact, more than one person, more than one blues musician using the name Robert Johnson touring the American South during his lifetime. Very little of his life was actually documented while he was alive with most stories, books, or documentaries about him being produced decades after his death. So at that point, most of what could be learned was secondhand and depended on the few that really knew him who were still alive and then you're counting on them to have clear recollections of things that would have happened many, many years before and to not embellish facts or occurrences. He was so largely unknown while alive and performing that a promoter, having heard some of his work, attempted to book Johnson for the Spirituals to Swing show at Carnegie Hall in 1938, only to learn that he had been dead for several months. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> no one is exactly sure when he died how he died, and there's dispute about where he's even buried. Perhaps the number of unknowns has led to people filling in the blanks with mythology, including the fact that he obtained his very famous musical gifts by selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads. But even then, there are disputes about which set of crossroads the two met to consummate the deal. Yeah, there
3: only- there's, there's, a, there's a TV show. This is the, the, the few times that I can actually interject this. There's a, a TV show which is ending in about six weeks that I've been obsessed with for the better part of a decade. It's called Supernatural, and they actually had an episode about Robert Johnson selling his soul at the crossroads, which actually set the TV show off on this path of crossroad demon dealings. And so we can thank Robert Johnson for kind of being the inspiration for a lot of this TV show's backstory. And sure but actually get to the demons and stuff. but as
4: we'll see as we as we'll you'll see as we get along robert johnson is far from the first nor the last person to have supposedly struck that faustian deal mm. yep. to, to, to obtain something with a, in a deal with the devil um there are only three known authenticated pictures of johnson and there's a dispute about two others and he recorded only 29 distinct songs in his lifetime so now you see why it's hard to tell his life story. But by the end of this podcast, we think you'll also see it's impossible to tell the story of modern American music without Robert Johnson.
3: I was going to say, he, so many people cite him as an influence. As the it's kind of amazing, yeah. As the birth of the Delta Blues yeah. kind of thing.
4: Yes, completely. Now, our story actually starts in Mississippi less than 10 years after the end of the Civil War. In October of 19- of 1874, julia major was born she married a for the time well-to-do landowner and furniture maker named charles todd and the two of them had 10 children Woo! now first of all that's it's it's like lady it's a vagina not a clown car but second of <laughs> all, well they had second, of all, second <laughs> of all that's a lot of kids obviously but the, okay but now i put an emphasis on the two of them Because Julia had at least one other child outside of her marriage, that being with a man 10 years her junior named Noah Johnson. Well, now
3: remember, Grandma was like one of 13, and they all lived on the floor of like a house that was infested with silverfish, so I mean. Right.
4: Well, the the thing is that you have to understand, you're talking about the early 1900s. People didn't family plan. You just had (laughs) sex, and however many kids came out, came out. You didn't say, okay, well, now I want to make sure I get my master's first and get two years into my career, and then we'll start trying. It's like, no, you, you didn't do that. You just you just did it. And you, if you had a bunch of kids, you had a bunch of kids. But, but also bear
1: in mind at that point, it was also an insurance policy. If you were, say, a farmer, if you didn't have kids to take over your farm, the farm would die.
4: Right. So and they also represented in the post-slavery era, you hate to say it, but they represented free labor. Sadly, yes. So Lots of, it, lots of kids represented people you didn't have to pay to do work on your farm. So okay. but,
1: one could argue that having children was actually, like you said, it's not family planning. It was almost business planning,
4: you know? Right. Yes. Some was. Yeah. Somewhat.
1: yeah.
4: Um, now, according to some information I found, Charles was forced fairly abruptly to leave um, their hometown in Hazelhurst, Mississippi by a lynch mob, essentially. Ooh. Um, Ooh. He, he was, he was well-to-do for an African-American in the early 1900s and was a property owner. Um, and I think some adjoining white property owners didn't take too kindly to some black fellow like living near 'em or whatever. Or whatever asinine reason they had to form a lynch mob and run him not not just hassle him, to to run him out of town. So he leaves he leaves very abruptly and he actually headed to Tennessee. So though none of what I found specifically said so, putting all the pieces together would indicate that Julia took up with Noah Johnson in her husband's absence. Now, within two years, she took her youngest son, who was born in the interim, to Tennessee to live with Charles, who by now had changed his last name to Spencer, for reasons I'm not entirely sure of. The son's name that she took along with him was Robert. His date of birth is estimated to have been on May 8th, 1911, and you can only estimate because if a birth certificate was even issued for him, then it has long since been lost.
1: Oh, wow. So there's
4: no even Jeez. birth official birth record? No. Wow. No, his, his mother recollects him being born sometime around May 8th, 1911. But that's, that's, that's as good as we get on, on any of that. Huh. So as a young boy in Memphis, and, I'm, and I want to emphasize a very young boy, he is estimated to have spent either eight or nine years in school attending the, and some of the words I'm going to have to use here occasionally are obviously extremely outdated, and somewhat offensive now, but I'm just reading them as they were.
3: Uh, we don't condone usage of any of these words at all
4: absolutely not if
3: they are if they are spoken on this podcast, they are spoken in <clears> the <throat> context of a quote, and it is right. never our intention to offend anyone. So please understand that these are not our words. these are the words of another author
4: right and and that we're talking about the early nineteen hundreds but he attended the Kames Avenue Colored School where he received lessons in arithmetic, reading, language, music, geography, and physical exercise. It was at this time that he first began to acquire a knowledge of and love for blues music. It's worth noting that since we're talking about the early 1920s, having any degree of education at all not only set him apart from other blues musicians and from African-Americans in general, who, let's just be honest, the government wasn't necessarily enabling African-Americans to to, to become educated. Um, but it also sets them uh, apart from a good chunk of the population as a whole, since we're talking about the, I mean, the fairly early 1900s. I mean, having any kind of a formal education was not a thing that everybody had.
1: It's true. Even, wasn't wasn't a wealth, thing most
4: people had. Wealthy. Yeah. Now, he went away to school. So having been away from home for that early schooling johnson returned to his mother sometime in the very early 1920s that means that johnson's formal education began when he was not much out of infancy because if he returned to his mother around 1920 ish as is estimated he'd only have been nine years old and they estimate that he was in school about eight years
1: and he was at a boarding school correct
4: so that's what that's kind of what it sounds like yeah now by this time his mother was no longer with charles Having married a man named Will Dusty Willis, according to accounts, he was twenty-four years Julia's junior.
3: Ooh, get it, girl! You go, cool. So
4: she, so she was in her mid forties, and he was about nineteen or twenty, as near as I as near as I, I could figure.
1: Which, if you think about average lifespan, that's uh right. That's quite a, an even larger gap at that point.
4: At that point in time, that was a massive gap. You're right. Now, Willis, a sharecropper, briefly moved the family to Lucas Township in Crittenden County, Arkansas. Then they moved back oh, across the Mississippi. Say,
3: can I just sure. say Crittenden County is actually the location of the West Memphis Three. Crittenden County? Yeah, Critton Oh, wow. County. Okay. Yeah, you know the the, the famous story about the uh, the three kids that were sure. killed and then the three that were sent to prison. Right. Yeah, that, that's
4: um, the famous case. Well, okay, so they 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 moved there briefly, and then Willis moved them back across the Mississippi to a small town near Tunica, Mississippi. Young Robert was known as, quote, Little, dus- Little Robert Dusty, but was registered at Tunica's Indian Creek School as Robert Spencer. He attended school from 1924 to 1927, so until about his 16th birthday. He had a school friend named Willie Coffey who... As you start to read about Johnson, becomes one of the scant handful of people who actually knew Robert Johnson and was interviewed about him on the record. He recalled him being absent for a long period of time, which may have been when he was living and studying in Memphis. He recalled that as a boy, Robert was proficient on both the harmonica and the jaw harp, which, or, or jew's harp, I guess some people would call it. Robert had been taught a quarter or two on the guitar by this time by one of his brothers. Annie Anderson lived in the same house with Johnson for several years, and she called him Brother Robert, though they were not blood kin. She was a child of Spencer's and a woman other than Robert Johnson's mother. So you start to see why I, I referenced the complicated family situation at the outset, because this, by God, I need a bingo card or something to keep up I with need, this.
3: I need like a, a diagram. I of- need a
4: flowchart. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so her name was uh, Annie Anderson. In her book, Brother Robert, Growing Up with Robert Johnson, she recalled that her father, who was Charles Spencer, uh, played multiple instruments. So Johnson grew up in a somewhat musical home. Now, a story I read didn't provide great detail on how he heard him, but Anderson also recollected that Johnson loved the music of Jimmy Rogers and again, I don't know if maybe they maybe they had a radio, maybe they had a Victrola and, and could buy 78s, maybe mm-hmm. in some of the clubs he was playing, he would have he would have heard his songs, perhaps um, known as the singing Breakman, Rogers, uh, who himself died very young of tuberculosis in 1933, is okay. one of the most influential artists of the early 1900s he essentially created the template for country music. And is and you have to say, now, he, he predated Hank Williams by a while. And he is seen as one of the, the most influential artists in the history of country music, almost kind of inventing the art form. However, he was also extremely popular with blues audiences. And his style was mimicked by a lot of early style, uh, stars of that genre as well. And there's not a really nice way to put this other than he was kind of singing white man's blues with a yodel and a twang. If, you, if you're familiar with his vocal stylings, and then you've actually heard Robert Johnson, you'll notice some similarities, actually. And, and you'll notice that people like and Wolf and Mississippi John Hurt were very influenced by Jimmy Rogers. Johnson would often, even at a young age, go to blues shows and juke joints and often beg performers to let him get up on stage and perform in between their sets. He was not particularly noted for his guitar playing at the time, but the amount of time he dedicated to watching or trying to play music put him at stiff odds with his stepfather who wanted him doing farm work and not fooling around with some guitar, pretty much, is, is, is how I read that. Sometime in his early teens, Robert's mother told him who his actual biological father was. Um, and I, I it's not specifically stated in anything I read, but it sounds like he had been led to believe it was it was Charles... Dodd or Charles Spencer, I guess, by the time he you know, changed his name. And Robert Johnson is the name that he signed on a marriage certificate at the age of 17. when and he wed... This
3: is like the first actual documented thing we have of his?
4: Yes, yes. He was 17 years old and he wed 16-year-old Virginia Travis in 1929. That marriage did not last very long, unfortunately, because her life didn't last very long. Um, she actually died while giving birth to their child of just, just months after, after the wedding.
3: Oh, geez.
4: Yeah. Again, this is, I, I think this is a, a, a tough thing to hear. I, and i certainly would have been if you were Robert Johnson, then some of, of her surviving relatives told researchers much later that Virginia's death was some sort of punishment. For Robert having pursued playing secular instead of religious music, this wow. was an act, and now this is a key a key phrase to think about. If you think about the legend of Robert Johnson, that was known as "quote selling your soul to the devil."
3: Huh.
4: Pursuing something that uh, secular music instead of religious music that was selling your soul to the devil.
3: Huh. So that could be the actual.
4: Or that that could be the nexus of where the, the legend started. Yeah, really could. Yeah. Okay, so around this time, a very well-known Delta blues man moved into town. This gave Robert the opportunity to not only watch and listen to, but also meet the great Sun House, a highly emotional singer and a renowned slide guitar player. Uh, his vocal style is a plaintiff wail reminiscent of the high lonesome sound associated with bluegrass music, but usually delivered much more slowly. It emoted pain and longing, and is very similar to the style for which Johnson would become famous many, many years later. Now, luckily, Son House lived well into his 80s and was interviewed about his recollections of Johnson. Uh, now in a brief clip that is available on YouTube and you can you can go look it up, House recalled his very first meeting with Robert Johnson. He said, quote, we was living about two miles apart. He'd follow me and Willie Brown, another blues man, around on Saturday night. Anytime we stopped to rest, he'd get the guitar and be trying to play it and be just annoying the people and the folks would come out and say why don't some of y'all go in there and make that boy put that thing down he's running us crazy house said so suffice it to say johnson wasn't particularly good at this point <laughs> at playing the guitar or singing the blues at least in the estimation of sunhouse house did say that johnson was a decent harmonica and mouth harp player but was actually terrible on the guitar not not just middling or not great he said he was terrible house said that johnson soon disappeared having run off from his mother and stepfather he moved to arkansas and was actually possibly looking for his biological father failed to found, uh, find him and then came back he said quote when he come back me and willie brown was playing and he walked in said house who remember johnson begging for a shot at the stage as per usual house said um, don't come back here with that robert now you know the people don't want to hear that racket he said let them say what they want. I want you to see what I learned. Johnson had improved immeasurably, according to House, who was absolutely floored at the drastic improvement. And this is another place where the mythology surrounding Johnson begins to come into play. Now, even if you don't know anything that, about Johnson that we've discussed up until now, and you've never really heard any of his music, you definitely know this one particular legend because it's taken on such a life of its own so much so that you said that this is the basis of a tv show right
3: it's it's what they draw very heavily from how to like get the demons it's called right. it's, the tv show is called supernatural it's one of okay. the best tv shows on the planet and also mm-hmm. it is a uh, sorry honey it's uh the the tv show of my true love jim Knuckles.
4: Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so even if you don't, don't know much about Robert Johnson or his music, you've probably heard the story that audiences saw him perform and that he was god-awful. And then variations of the story have him you know, being so bad that he was actually booed off stage. Then miraculously, just days or weeks later, depending on where you're hearing the legend from, he returned to the stage as the greatest blues man alive. That quick shift led to the idea that Johnson had exchanged eternal ownership of his soul to the devil in exchange for virtuosity on the blues guitar. Specifically, according to the most popular version of the legend, Johnson met the devil at the crossroads of highways 49 and 61 in Clarksdale, Mississippi, late one night, where Johnson, for the low, low price of eternal damnation, allowed the devil to tune and play his guitar before returning it and giving with it the superior talent that Johnson so craved. Now, House supposedly gave supernatural explanation of Johnson's rapid mastery of the instrument to a music historian named Pete Welding, who then reported it as a serious belief in a widely circulated article. This came at a time when the work of Johnson was being rediscovered by many and discovered by white audiences for the very first time in the 1960s. Okay, there are varying versions of the story with one placing Johnson in the graveyard, in a graveyard, at midnight for consummation of the deal. And another, which has Johnson meeting a mysterious quote, large black man representative of the devil at the crossroads. So let's start to deconstruct the story just a little bit. So first of all, House was apparently hesitant to repeat his claim when asked about it in subsequent interviews or was just dismissive of it. Just saying, oh, that's just a bunch of mess or or whatever. the, The passage of time is also a very important factor here. Okay, by House's own recollection in the interview that I I referenced earlier, the amount of time between when he saw Johnson annoy juke joint patrons with his craptastic playing and his wowing them with otherworldly talent was between six and eight months. Was craptastic a quick quote? Crap. um, You know what? I took a little bit of creative license with (laughs) with craptastic. (laughs) Sunhouse did not use that. Okay, so, so you already see now this was not days or weeks. Which people, which you, which is what you'll sometimes hear, like, oh, we saw him on a Thursday, and and the next Friday he was he had improved, it, like it was unbelievable. Okay, by Sunhouse's own estimation, the gap between when he perhaps got booed off the stage, he was so bad, and when he demonstrated almost this mastery of the blues guitar was six to eight months. Hmm. Some historians actually put the amount of time that he was gone between one and two years. So, so a, bit
3: a, a bit of an exaggeration. You it's, think? A
4: complete, it's a complete exaggeration. If you've ever heard the days or weeks versions, which, which I have, and there are plenty of, of people who peddle that, it's wrong. Sun House said it was six to eight months, and there are historians who've kind of studied timelines who actually put it at up to two years that he was gone. So Johnson himself actually stated that while he was gone, he sought out proper instruction on how to play the guitar from a blues man named Isaiah Zimmerman, um, who was noted for his excellent finger picking and slide guitar acumen. Now, perhaps the nexus of the legend came from the fact that the two would practice in graveyards late at night, but doing so had nothing to do with the devil or the occult in any way. They chose the location because it was quiet and secluded and said that nobody would bother them there
3: makes sense yeah i mean like it makes it you think that number one it's not going to be very populated Mm -hmm. there are half decent acoustics around because Mm -hmm. and even if there are people present typically they are respectful of quiet so i mean right i I mean we've talked about this on the show where i if i need to go clear my head i'll actually go to the forest lawn cemetery and just walk around right and read headstones because it's kind of uh kind of comforting cathartic
4: i would imagine yeah yeah and and it's one of the uh, given where you live it's probably one of the only places you can go that there isn't an abundance of noise
3: yeah you know, it's really quiet and respectful and there are birds and it's just not. it's you know it's a nice place to go because i i hate i hate that there isn't quiet here like even in my own right opinion, like we have next door neighbors that i i'm pretty sure if i go to prison it's because i killed them
4: yeah <laughs> Okay, this sounds like a good place to move along. All right. (laughs) One of Zimmerman's daughters actually told Blue's researcher, Bruce Conforth, quote, he fitted in our family and he had to be nice because my daddy was a strong man and a good man. And so he wouldn't have taken up no time with someone who wasn't a good person. That's the reason I believe he took Robert under his arm. And so he was just like a family member. He came there and lived in our house, she said. The two met in a juke joint that Zimmerman played in, apparently. Quote, Robert Johnson asked my daddy to teach him how to play guitar, and my daddy taught him. He lived there with my daddy. He stayed a long time because he was staying to learn how to play the guitar. So there's a quote from somebody who verifies that Johnson, A, studied under this guy for a really long time, and that this Zimmerman guy was apparently a very well thought of blues musician. So... That kind of throws a little more cold water on the, you know, dance with the devil thing. But so Johnson was living with and learning from a very accomplished guitar player. And you have to think if he was pouring himself into the instrument, it stands to reason that he would have improved dramatically over the course of six to eight months or one to two years, whichever the actual timeline was. Especially when you consider the fact that he was... He seemed to have a little bit of an affinity for music to start with. He, we, we already covered the fact he was a, a pretty good harmonica player. Uh, and Sunhouse actually said he was a pretty good mouth harp player too. And he was raised in a little bit of a musical household because Charles Spencer played numerous musical instruments. So if he sunk up to two years of his life into just playing every day, hours, you know, putting hours and hours and hours into it, naturally he would have improved a great deal. There is thought among some scholars that the devil referred to in the story is actually not the biblical Satan, but it is the African trickster god. And I apologize if I'm messing the name up. Legba?
3: Papa Legba.
4: Okay. Papa Legba There's also a- is,
3: uh, is a, voodoo, a voodoo practitioner.
4: Okay.
3: Uh, he, he is known for making deals. Uh, and I think, I might be wrong on this, but I think the deal is, you give him the greatest thing to you like the the, right. thing that is the most important to you that's what right. you so forgive me if there are any like voodoo priests or practitioners out there that i get that wrong but from what i understand it's it's also a, a soul giving than a giving up of something that is extremely important to you. And and
4: that's kind of, that's that's pretty close to the to the stuff that I read the, about the people who believe uh, who have this belief that you know it's not it's not the biblical satan that he made a deal with. Um, there's also a,
3: his that the area that he was living in I they they might be very close to Louisiana which is you know where
4: Sure, oh you know, definitely. Came sure. Across,
3: so, yeah.
4: There's also a school of thought that essentially The idea of quote, selling your soul at the crossroads would have had a different meaning to African-Americans in the early part of the last century than it would to their white counterparts. That being that the crossroads was a place where one went to obtain direction and wisdom. You -hmm. would go there to learn, in other words. It should also be noted that numerous figures throughout history have been alleged to have exchanged their souls to the devil for some degree of talent, ability, or knowledge. In fact, a contemporary blues man of Johnson's named Tommy Johnson, no relation, was also alleged to have sold his soul to the devil in exchange for musical talent at the crossroads.
3: Yeah, people are just in, handing out souls, aren't they? <laughs>
4: right. In literature, of course, we have the character Dr. Faustus, who's often referred to as Faust, who traded his soul for knowledge and power to the devil.
3: was actually kind of disappointed in his restaurant. Really? Yeah. <laughs> we would... We went to the, when we were in Germany, we went oh, to
1: the... Oh, a- Keller. Yeah. yeah,
3: which was supposed to be where Faust ate.
1: Allegedly, yeah. And there's a big statue of uh, so, of the Faust story as you go
4: in. Yeah. Uh, so, so they had really crappy deviled eggs.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> is, that, is that what you're alleging? It's like what, what, What's on the menu today? Deviled ham, deviled eggs, deviled crab. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Things with the devil in it. (laughs) Which which one can we interest you in? Some more modern views of the legend indicate it may have come uh, to some degree out of racism, with white folks willing to assume that a black musician had to have gone to some illicit lengths to procure top-level talent. Um, Now, now, now it would not have been white folks who started this rumor. According to this line of thought, it would have been like Sun House and a few other people but that they were, very, they were very ready to accept it and run with it and promulgate that as being something that actually happened. I'm just going to say, I think any story like that probably is good for your legend and your career because it, it gives like a, a there's, there's already so much mystery surrounding this guy, as you'll continue to see throughout this podcast. But I would say anytime there's something that makes you seem infamous, it probably just helps. It's, any publicity is good publicity, right? Like right.
3: Here and The Gerbil.
4: Right. Or, the, or, or one of my favorites is, we go back to the 1970s, Alice Cooper's playing a concert in Detroit. Someone throws a live chicken on stage, <laughs> right? And Cooper, being a city boy, had, didn't know what it was. It, it's a thing with wings and feathers. He thought, eh, hey, it'll fly. So he kind of scooped it up and just kind of tossed it. And it didn't fly as much as it fell into the audience, who ripped it to pieces and started throwing pieces of this dead chicken at Alice Cooper. Right. Jeez. So oh my God, did that happened. <laughs> yeah. So the next day or a day or two after Cooper gets a call from Frank Zappa who says, Alice, did you actually sacrifice a live chicken on stage? Cause that's what the press is saying. And Cooper said, God, no, of course not. And and Zappa said, well, don't tell anybody that it's the best story ever. <laughs> so
3: yeah we got got the uh we 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 actually had a whole episode of rumors in rock last year oh oh my gosh yeah that was a year ago yeah it was in october of last year so you guys can check out those but those are some rumors in rock and we kind of either debunk them or you know give a little bit of evidence to the 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 truth of the matter so check yeah okay
4: so Anderson, who is the lady that wrote the Brother Robert book, for one, is not a fan of the the devil legend, telling the newspaper, the commercial appeal, quote, that is just conjured up. When people ask me that question, I ask them, did Eric Clapton go to the crossroads? Did Bonnie Raitt go to the crossroads? Did the Rolling Stones go to the crossroads? Brother Robert was just a talented young man. He didn't have to go to the crossroads.
3: I also think that's that's sort of a racially like I could see the racial divide there because right why can't a a black man just be talented
4: just be good at what he He did right
3: behind it he can't just have natural talent he has to sell his soul to the devil
4: so so some of it may have been that, that and then parts of it may just be that there are such big gaps in what we actually know about this guy that that these legends and rumors and mysteries kind of fill the space in for some people i don't know we do
3: need to take a short break for our sponsors and we will be right back and welcome back to the show guys thank you so much for checking out our sponsors you really help out the show by helping them out
4: okay so picking back up on the story of robert johnson Now, even if Johnson did strike up a sinister bargain with the ruler of the underworld, Hmm. no one can can decide exactly where he did that. The towns of Dockery, Hazelhurst, and Beauregard have all been identified as the location of the mythical crossroads. But there are tourist attractions that claim to be the definitive crossroads in Clarksdale and also in Memphis, Tennessee.
1: Well, I, I, we're talking here, looked up Clarksdale and I could see why they would make that claim because there's not much there.
4: Rosedale, Mississippi also claims to be the real crossroads at, and says that it's actually at the intersections of highways one and eight, but who knows? Having delved into uh, one of the more popular stories of Johnson's life, this seems like a good place to have our first musical interlude of the episode. Now we're going to hear a song that Robert did called crossroads blues and if you aren't familiar with it you might believe given the title that this is johnson somehow acknowledging that faustian bargain where he gave up his soul to be able to play the guitar but it's not johnson recorded two takes of this one one with additional lyrics but neither makes reference to the devil or a deal of any kind in fact in the first version it's actually quite the opposite lyrically with johnson saying quote ask the lord above have mercy now save poor bob if you please it's it's really if you read the lyrics a tale of loneliness and longing and you might recognize that it has been covered by some fairly prominent artists which we will get to eventually in the meantime though we're going to hear our first song from robert johnson this is the blues master himself doing crossroad blues So, so you guys uh, hear that. What do you, what do you think?
3: I, I was saying that I love the way that records sound from that era. They, they, mm-hmm. they take you back like no other era of music does. Because right. you, at this time also, you had the big bands doing stuff too. Right. The 30s. So you had you know the big bands and the, the Benny Goodmans and all that stuff. So you had two different drastic sounds. But there's just something about that era of recording, like how how far their technology had come to that point, right. It puts you in a completely different mindset when you're listening to this music.
4: It and does. and I'll, I'll tell you we're we're actually very lucky that the the original master recordings were saved.
3: What? Because in a lot
4: of instances, they would not have been. Hmm. if 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 you would if you would have access to that at all, it would be on a decrepit old scratched up 78 yeah and not not the actual master tapes so we're, we're fortunate in, in that respect okay so back to his personal life a little bit uh johnson did father a child with a woman named virgie Mae smith
3: can i hold you there did the other baby not survive the one that he was
4: no he lost both both his wife and his child okay so during um, that unfortunately it was... yeah uh, okay. yeah and it, it, during during the course of childbirth Okay, But now he didn't marry Virgie May Smith. He married a a lady named Coletta Craft in May of 1931. And the young family moved to Clarksdale, Mississippi for a little while. But then Robert just left. And he um, became a traveling musician. Coletta, by the way, with Robert absent from her life by this time, obviously died in 1933. uh, uh, And I'm not sure what the the cause was, but Johnson was was what was referred to as an itinerant musician playing at small clubs and juke joints in the Mississippi Delta regions of Mississippi and Arkansas. He would literally sometimes walk from town to town with his guitar. Wow. See if he could find work doing whatever. Yeah. There are almost no accounts at all of those shows and that's owed to a couple of of factors. Now I can tell you from personal experience of searching microfilm of very old newspapers that at the, the time The newspapers in smaller towns like he would have been playing in and even a lot of large newspapers largely ignored the black community. Just there was just no acknowledgement that they were doing anything. Hardly. The other thing I will say, though, is that even if they had paid attention, him visiting would not have warranted attention because nobody knew who he was. You know, we think of him now, uh, you know, almost 100 years in retrospect as well. He's the, the king of the Delta Blues. He's Robert Johnson. Yeah, he was just some dude then. Nobody knew who the guy was. Nobody. Hardly.
1: And it sounds like he came into town with no fanfare. I mean he just showed up with his guitar, right? And playing a bar. Right.
4: And 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 honestly, the, the little bit of local acclaim he might have in, in places was actually uh grifted off of by other people who would call themselves Robert Johnson, even though that <laughs> wasn't their name.
3: It's like the zombies, right?
4: Right. And it's but they would there were people who would um know that robert johnson oh you know robert johnson has like a a, a little bit of a, of a reputation in, in this town a good one so they would say yeah uh, they just show up at the club hey i'm robert johnson <laughs> and lie and say they were just to try to draw a little bit more of a crowd or get a little bit more money or whatever yes yeah so um that's that's, that's so there's certainly that um while on the road he would often stay in the homes of women whom he was able to seduce and and actually had long-term relationships with many women in many of the towns that he regularly played. He, he himself would actually use fake names from time to time. And I don't know if that has something to do with the fact that he had so many different women in so many different towns, or if there was a professional reason that he did it, but he would often use fake names himself up to 8 different fake names that are documented. It was also not uncommon for him to busk, not just play the the, the you know the the shows in the clubs that he did.
3: So he would just like would, go on the street and just play yes. on the street. Right.
4: He would he would stand usually in front of local barber shops huh. and huh. Would play for for whatever change people would give him. Musicians who knew him and played with him uh said that he did not play his blues numbers when he was doing that. he was playing like the popular songs of the day, so they said he would stand out front of the barbershop and play like Bing Crosby and jimmy rogers and 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 people like that,
3: like the San Francisco human jukebox.
4: yeah so yeah yeah, kind of um those same people who knew him and played with him included guys uh like Johnny Shines and David Honeyboy Edwards, which is a fantastic nickname, <laughs> said that. Johnson was a well-mannered guy, that he was pleasant and outgoing in public, a fairly neat person, and a smart guy. owed to the fact that you know, he, did have, he had a, a, about a 10, 11 years of, of formal education, which most people would not have had at that point. But they said that he tended to go his own way in private. He was, quote, fairly average aside from his musical talent. They also described him as very committed to the road and possessing two weaknesses that are pretty common in musicians. Those being being women and whiskey. There you go. He did travel outside of the Mississippi Delta on a few occasions and he played shows uh, in Chicago, which had a burgeoning blue scene. He obviously didn't walk to Chicago, (laughs) from Mississippi. Okay. (laughs) I'm imagining he, he caught a bus or hitched a ride with somebody at that point. Um, He he played in Texas some, he played in New York, he actually played in Canada, Kentucky and Indiana. There are believed to have been authenticated Robert Johnson shows in all those locations. Okay, so in 1936, Johnson sold out a man named H.C. Spire, who a lot of musicians would seek out. He was a talent scout who also happened to own a general store. Spire in turn put Johnson in touch with a guy named Ernie Ordle, who worked for a record label, Ordle introduced him to Don Law, a record producer of note. Law would produce the only recordings that Johnson made in his lifetime. They had a recording session for three days in November of 1936 in room 414 of the Gunter Hotel in San Antonio, Texas. So, I mean, super great accommodations. Ba- basically, they went to a Hojo and cut, cut a record.
3: <laughs> you know what, though? got. Guy- pretty good acoustics because think about how much how dead that room is because they've got the carpets the the, the, the Uh, towels the sheets everything it's not a terrible
4: and this
1: is a practice that's been adopted by a lot of musicians over the years they'll play in their hotel rooms for tracks
4: sure Allen did it did it i mean yep johnson played 16 songs and he did alternate takes for most of them he apparently performed while facing a wall which some believe demonstrated that he was shy and nervous to perform in front of a small intimate audience. Now, according to some accounts, it was just he and law in this room, according to some versions of the story, because with everything, Robert Johnson, there's more than one version of a story. It was he law and a group of Mexican musicians that law had perhaps recorded a little bit earlier in the day or just beforehand. And, and they said that he faced the wall because he was, you know he, you know there was such intimacy in the way he performed. So he was so vulnerable that it it, it made him shy and nervous, and he didn't want to do it in front of people. But then some uh, other people, like a uh, musician Rye Cooter, theorized that he he was in fact doing it for um, hold, hold, acoustics. Hold, hold hold.
3: What was his name?
4: Rye Cooter. That's a name.
3: Okay, you know <laughs> what? we're just gonna move on. <laughs>
4: So people like Ry Cooter um, <laughs> believed that it actually had more to do with acoustics than with him having been nervous or shy or not wanting to perform in front of other people. He, um, that, uh, apparently, a lot of early artists would use this technique, performing facing a wall or a corner or a corner. They called it corner loading," huh. and it apparently gave you a tiny little bit of reverb and a little bit um, of an echo effect, I guess. That There was no way that you could get through studio technology at that time. Um, among the songs that he laid down in that session were Come On In My Kitchen, Kind-Hearted Woman, Crossroad Blues, I Believe I'll Dust My Broom, and Terraplane Blues. The latter was among his very first releases, Terraplane Blues, along with Last Fair Deal Gone Down. And those two were probably the only recordings he ever made that he actually heard. Huh. Um, Terraplane Terraplane Blues was actually a regional hit selling about 5,000 copies. And at this point, you're talking solely on 78 RPMs, I would presume. Now, so it wasn't much of a hit, but it's the the biggest, the closest he came to one in his lifetime anyway. Terraplane Blues uses a car as a metaphor for sex, and it doesn't do it in an especially subtle way either. People have this idea that all, oh all blues music is about Oh, you know, she left me, and I'm sad. It's like, no. A lot of it's about doing drugs and drinking and chasing skirts, and some of them are funny, and some of them are the, the least subtle things that you can imagine. <laughs> 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 like "Teraplaying Blues," as you'll hear in just a second when we play it, is is one of those. It's not that there the 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 veil that that is covering that one is extremely thin. Mm-hmm. Um, this being the only song that was any sort of a hit at all in Robert Johnson's lifetime, let's go ahead and listen to that one now. So this is Robert Johnson with the, the closest thing he had to a hit of any kind in his 27 years on planet earth. This is called the Terraplane Blues. <music>
0: i There's their generator won't get that far. on in a bad condition. You got to have these job charged. I'm crying blue. Cause she read Nicole 100 and I'm booked and I got to go.
4: So uh, Robert Johnson's Terraplane Blues, the closest thing he had to hit in his lifetime, sold about 5,000-ish copies upon its release. Um, okay, so about six months after he does this first recording session, he goes, well, I was about to say back in the studio. <laughs> <really. He did, laughs> this one wasn't in a Super 8, though. He did <laughs> go back and record some more songs uh, with this Law guy. Um, he, Johnson traveled to Dallas, Texas for another session with Law, recording some more very low fidelity songs in a makeshift studio. He recorded another batch of songs, but he couldn't have known at the time, it was the last time that he would ever record anything because his time on earth was down to its its very final few weeks at this point. Robert Johnson is believed to have died on August 16th, 1938. Now, if you've been listening up to this point, which if you've, if you've gotten here, I imagine you have, um, you're thinking, well, wow, you know, there's, not, there's not a whole lot there. We don't know a whole lot about this guy. But this is, that's not uncommon, right, LD? It's,
3: it's not. It seems to be more of a recent, and I'm using the bunny ears when I mm-hmm. say recent, maybe like the 1960s, where really we started paying attention to artists and artists' lives and going, you know what, maybe we should write this down. Right. So you could do a little bit of a backlog of the people that were in the 30s because they might still be around to tell their stories. But really, you know, any if you weren't someone of note at the time, let's say like John Jacob Astor, who was on the Titanic, like there wasn't really anyone who kind of stuck around and told your story. Now that's not to say with political figures or other kinds of people. That they didn't write their stories down. I'm saying specifically artists, actors, singers, performers. Well,
4: see, even even with people like let's say famous politicians, let's just say the 1800s, a lot of times you are still you're still counting on secondhand information because it's not like they had biographers following them around necessarily, but you yeah. would have had the press covering their their events and covering their speeches and things like that. <clears throat> Where with somebody like Johnson, they didn't de- even do that.
3: But even now, like with Nick Cordero, we have like pretty much hour by hour updates of how he was doing in the hospital because of social media. So, you know, next week I'm right now in the process of editing down Amy Winehouse, who is currently holding it 36 pages of research. Oh, geez. Because there's so much written about her and there's so much documentation about her.
4: whereas with Johnson I had to I had to really dig and scratch and and, and and look around for some of this stuff.
3: Yeah. And I mean it's really it's, it's a it's really dip, but you know what honestly we're kind of blessed cuz I think that adds to the mystique that adds to
4: completely, it completely. Absolutely. I
3: kind of love a mystery. <laughs>
4: well, there's still plenty to come with him. So Johnson is believed to have died like we said on August 16th, 1938, but his death was not publicly reported. This came shortly after he played at a dance in Greenwood, Mississippi. The gifted guitar player, singer, and songwriter was just 27 years old, making him one of the earliest recording artists that's a member of this 27 Club. I know there are some artists from the, gosh, <laughs> from five, 600 years ago that supposedly died at 27, but this is one of the earliest recording artists probably that that's a member of that club. Yes. Um, Now, this is typically where we end episodes of the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. LD gives, you know, our socials. I might read a vibrator commercial or whatever she does. and, (laughs) And she invites you to listen next week. And we play like one song and we take it to the house. Right. But given that we haven't even been talking that long yet, you're probably thinking, hey, way to do your research there, slack ass. Well, but we told you at the outset, Johnson's story is unlike almost any musician that we've covered before. Typically, when a musician dies now, as, as L.D. just mentioned, um, they've already authored their legacy. In the case of Johnson and people of his era, though, legend, lore, and, and musical life sometimes doesn't start until much later. And Robert Johnson's musical life didn't start until well after his physical life ended now there's still a lot of unanswered questions about johnson ones that only seem to add to his mystique for starters no one is exactly sure what killed him so 30 years after his passing musicologist gail dean wardlow was researching his life and did find a death certificate which listed only the date and location of his death with no official cause of death listed and no autopsy was performed on him
3: does anybody even know where he's buried
4: well, we, oh, we'll get there. Wow. Just wait. That, that's a whole thing on, uh, unto itself. So he just... There talks. was there, there no. was a note. There was a note written on the back of his death certificate attributing his death to complications from syphilis. Okay. Right.
3: Um, makes so sense. lap books. He liked the ladies. He did. And yep. And there wasn't really penicillin.
4: Right. And so maybe he, maybe he, he was dirty in the lap, perhaps. That's how, that's
3: how Capone went out.
4: Right. According to a New York Times article, that was the explanation that was given by the owner of the plantation where Johnson died. So I'm going to read the explanation, the note that's on the back of that death certificate. And this is the, the same warning we gave you a little bit earlier. Understand these are some very outdated terms that are included in this, but I'm just, I'm just going to read them verbatim as, as they were written, because it's part of a historical record. The explanation that was written on the back of this death certificate said, quote, I talked with the white man on whose place this Negro died. And I also talked with a Negro woman on the place. The plantation owner said the Negro man, seemingly about 26 years old, came from Tunica two or three weeks before he died to play banjo at a Negro dance given there on the plantation. He stayed in the house with some of the Negroes saying he wanted to pick cotton. The white man did not have a doctor for this Negro as he had not worked for him. He was buried in a homemade coffin furnished by the county. The plantation owner said it was his opinion that the man died of syphilis. So that theory really appears to be based on nothing but the opinion of this this plantation owner who was not a medical professional. (laughs) Clearly. Right.
3: And didn't even know really, Robert, sounds like. He
4: didn't know the guy and it's like, well, what killed him? Uh, Syphilis probably. (laughs) I mean, like, he could, he could have said anything there and they were going to put it on, on this note on the death certificate is what it kind of sounds like.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: In 2006, a medical practitioner named David Connell suggested that based on pictures of Johnson, and there aren't many of those, which we'll also get into, that well, those pictures apparently show unnaturally long fingers and a bad eye. So he theorizes that Johnson may have had something called Marfin Marfan syndrome.
3: Marfan. marfan
4: syndrome
3: we know which marfan. could have
4: contributed which could have contributed to his death due to aortic dissension
3: matt matt mcgory um, who was in the uh the movie big fish also yeah. Marfans. so it's it, it's okay. a very short life that General you can Wars. live uh but matt matt mcgory uh was in big fish he was also tiny in a house of a thousand corpses so he was a very large guy and so yeah. that that might have an issue with uh, aortic issues.
4: Okay. Now, there's also a popular belief among many that Robert Johnson was poisoned. According to that story, Johnson was having an affair with a married woman named Beatrice Davis. As the rumor goes, uh, per a story that I read in Atlas Obscura, her jealous husband, Ralph, dosed Johnson's whiskey with naphthalene, which Apparently, a, a popular way of poisoning people in the South in those days was to dissolve mothballs, and then you would spike their drink with huh. it's It is possible, according to one theory, that he didn't actually intend to kill Johnson just to make him sick or render him unconscious. Okay, so apparently, this substance, which you made, again, by dissolving mothballs, was secretly added to the drinks of rowdy patrons at bars in an attempt to calm them down huh. sometimes.
3: Really? Um,
4: Yeah.
1: Depressant. (laughs) However,
4: Johnson had recently been diagnosed with a severe ulcer, and in his weakened state from that condition, it's entirely possible that the poison could have finished him off. Some historians claim that the inclusion of syphilis on his death certificate may actually have been used to help cover up the alleged foul play involving his death. Hmm. Others, other theories say that his drink was laced with strychnine. I've, I've read some pretty extensive um, breakdowns of that. It's the, the current modern people who have looked at that don't think that's possible because if they'd put a large enough dose of strychnine in his drink to kill him, his death would have come in hours, not within the days over which he became sick and eventually died. Now, a story in Mother Jones says that either the jealous husband who apparently owned the club at which Johnson was playing or Johnson's lover herself gave Johnson the poison drink. That story says that Johnson's mother actually recounted that she was told, quote, some wicked girl or her boyfriend had given poison and wasn't no doctor in the world could save him, they say. She then told of his death. She said she went to see him and that he was laying in a bed with his guitar across his chest. As Soon as he saw me, he said, mama, you all I've been waiting for here, take this and hang this thing, his guitar on the wall. Cause I didn't pass all that by. That's what got me messed up, mama. It's the devil's instrument, just like you said, and I don't want it no more. Mm-hmm. And he died while I was hanging his guitar on the wall. Oh, wow. Now that version of the story is dismissed by some people. But Honey Boy Edwards claims that he was there. This is a musician who traveled some with Johnson and knew him pretty well. And he completely backs the version of the story in which Robert Johnson was poisoned. He said, quote, this man had a good looking woman and he didn't want to lose her. And Robert was about to take her away. Now he said that the man put a pint of poisoned corn liquor on the chair next to Johnson as he played and then Johnson just naturally started picking it up and drinking from it. Pretty soon he was feeling sick and Edwards took him to the home of a friend where he died a few days later. Robert loved whiskey and women and some women you got to leave alone. You know what yeah. I mean, Honey Boy said. Now there's another version of the story in which Honey Boy Edwards actually walked up to, to Johnson after he saw him take this drink uh, uh, or well a, a bottle of liquor from somebody and slapped it out of his hand and, and told him that, you know, he said, man, you don't ever drink from a bottle of liquor that you don't open yourself. According to that legend, Johnson then informed him he better not ever slap a bottle of liquor out of his hand again, and that this woman gave him another bottle of poison liquor, which he drank from and which ultimately killed him. There's a school of thought that Johnson had some sort of esophageal issue that the poison liquor may have caused hemorrhaging in his esophagus, because Edwards does say that when Johnson died, he was in great pain. That that's one thing that's that, that, that the one, the one part of this, you probably know that is true is that if it was syphilis, I'm sure he was in pain. If he was poisoned, it was probably, he was probably in pain. If it affected his ulcer, he would have been in pain. If he had some sort of esophageal issues and this caused hemorrhaging in his throat, then he would have been in huge pain. (laughs) So, so you see what I'm saying? We don't even know how the guy died really.
1: And yet someone just looks at it and goes "Eh, syphilis. I mean, yeah.
4: Syphilis, right. It it almost, it almost certainly wasn't syphilis, though. That, that's pretty much the one thing we can probably glean from all of this. In the same way that there are varying theories about how Johnson died, there is not a definitive answer, and you alluded to this earlier, LD, about where he's even buried. In his 1991 documentary, The Search for Robert Johnson, John Hammond theorizes that given the lack of transportation and money Johnson would likely have just been buried very near where he died in a potter's field. His death certificate states he is buried, quote, at Zion Church in Lafleur County, Mississippi. So you probably think, okay, well, that clears it up, right? It, it says right there where he's buried. Nope. That could mean Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Morgan City. It could be Little Zion Church, or it could be this other church that's just called the Zion Church. <laughs> there, There are three... There are three churches with Zion in the in the name within a couple of miles of where Robert Johnson died.
3: Come on, man! It, Mount Zion, one thing.
4: <laughs> they don't. They won't give us shit here, LD. Seriously, it, yeah. Mount Zion Missionary Baptist didn't help matters by dedicating a memorial to Johnson on its grounds in 1991 that included a large cenotaph. The church is just off of Highway Seven. In Mississippi, allowing them to play on a line, a popular line from one of Johnson's songs that went, "You may bury my body down by the highway side." The church did not technically claim that Johnson was buried on its grounds. Uh, They actually took great pains to note that what we're building now this is not a headstone. Now this is a cenotaph, which is a memorial to somebody whose remains are, are believed to be lost. One member of the church rather frankly admitted that the church was facing imminent foreclosure. And that the memorial, the memorial was an effort to attract visitors and money. Mm. There are many other memorials at some of those other churches. And I thought this was kind of cool. One of them was actually bought and paid for by the members of of the band ZZ Top. What? Who are apparently very, very, who are apparently very influenced by Robert Johnson. And there was word that, well, you know, they've, we think we, we think we found where he's buried and ZZ Top said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll pay for some kind of memorial then. And they, they wrote a check and paid for it. Which I think is really cool. That is, is, that is really cool. Yeah. But there there are several uh places that claim to be his burial place, and there are lots of places with cenotaphs and headstones and all this kind of stuff, including one at Payne Chapel Missionary Baptist Church, which doesn't have Zion in the title at all, which is listed on his death certificate. And that's actually based on some evidence offered by a lady named, and this is a what a great name. Her name is Queen Elizabeth Thomas. Ah, so it, Wow. Who, claim, who claims to have dated Johnson at some point during his life. And she says he's, he was buried at that church. All that was known for sure for a very long time was what was included on his death certificate, was that he was buried at, quote, the Zion Church, and that he was buried in an unmarked grave. Now, a story from the New York Times just last year played up the mysterious nature of Johnson's interment. However, the Atlas Obscura article that I referred to earlier Claims that there actually is an answer to where is he buried. Okay, so in the late 1980s, Blues researcher Mac McCormick was able to locate Johnson's half-sister, a lady named Carrie Harris. She told him that Johnson was hastily buried in a homemade coffin. Upon hearing of this, now she lived in Memphis at the time that Johnson died, but upon hearing of this, she located the only black undertaker in that area and had him exhume Johnson's remains and then reinter them in a more high quality coffin. That man's name was Paul McDonald, and Paul McDonald apparently kept very detailed records about where he buried people. So McCormack and another researcher got access to McDonald's records and say that Johnson was buried at Little Zion Baptist Church off of Money Road in Greenwood. This location was subsequently uh, identified by the former wife of the man who dug Robert Johnson's grave as being the place. So, but, but that's still not officially official. No. That's, that's the best guess is that he, that is, that's where Robert Johnson is buried. All that uncertainty seems to add to his mystique and it plays up the idea of this sort of tortured soul, even, I guess you could say, right? Yeah. The the restless soul that doesn't have a place to to rest or whatever. But a a guy named Elijah Wald, who's an author of a book on Johnson, said that there was actually really nothing unusual or mysterious about an African-American in that era being buried in an unmarked grave. He said, it's not, there's no mystique. There's no legend. That's not like a big deal. He said, the only thing that makes this case seem strange is that, quote, a bunch of white people care where he is buried, huh. as opposed to other African Americans from that era who just would have been buried in unmarked graves, and that was that. And they'll never, and they they'll never be found. At least there's an idea maybe of where Johnson was buried. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, months after his death, this guy John Hammond actually tried to book Johnson for the, like Jurassic, spiritual- Park? <laughs> the
3: <guy from laughs> Jurassic Park. Guy uh, for Jurassic Park?
4: Yes, that guy. There are no expense. Um, who tried? He tried to book Johnson for the spirituals to swing show at Carnegie Hall in New York. Now that could have been a a, a, a platform from which Johnson's uh, career could have been absolutely launched into the stratosphere, right? Uh, the only problem is he was dead, and nobody knew it.
1: The only problem.
4: <laughs> the the one problem with him appearing live and in person at Carnegie Hall is that he was dead. They apparently did play some of his records from the stage that night when they did put on this concert. Huh. Um, Alan Lomax, a musicologist, went to Mississippi in nineteen forty-one hoping to record some more songs with Robert, only to find out that he was dead. So this is three full years after Robert Johnson died. That that's how little he was known. He's three sad. years after he was dead, some guy shows up in Mississippi. Hey, um, can anybody point me out to point me in the direction of this Robert Johnson guy? I wanna put him on tape some more. Yeah, yeah he's he he's dead. He's dead. But that that demonstrates the, the degree to which he was largely unknown in his own lifetime, and that his death attracted almost no attention whatsoever. And really, the story could have ended there. You know, he put out, you know, he recorded 29 songs, two of them out, I think. One of them sold about 5,000 copies, which was made it a pretty moderate, you know, regional hit. And that would have been that. And nobody would have talked about him, and he wouldn't have influenced that many people, and we certainly wouldn't be doing a podcast on him right now, right? Johnson's music was, in fact, largely unheard, and he had no legacy outside of the the local legends in Mississippi, and it would have stayed that way, except in 1961, Uh, Lowell, who still had the original master recordings of Johnson, had gotten a job by that time for Columbia Records. He assembled a collection called King of the Delta Blues Singers that contained about half of the tracks that Johnson ever recorded in his lifetime. So this gave his work and and his legend some widespread exposure for the very first time. The album was an especially big hit in England where there was a growing interest in American blues music. Among the people who heard that record back in the early 1960s was an aspiring young guitar player by the name of Eric Clapton.
3: Hmm. I might have heard of him. You Eric. may
4: have heard of him. I don't know. Go on. Uh, okay. Yeah, he's. Uh, it's. He seems like he's. Seems like he's. He's. He's had a hit here and there. Um, that that I can recall.
3: He's no Slash, right?
4: Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> it's not like he was in a memorable band like uh, Warrant or Nelson.
3: <laughs> the Thompson Twins.
4: Last Tiger. Hello. Or the Thompson twins, or
3: Glass whoever. <laughs> <laughs>
4: tonight, the screaming cheetah wheelies for the full hour. Tonight,
3: tonight, dead or alive for the full hour.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Who Dixie's midnight runners taking your calls? In two thousand seven, Clapton issued a memoir, and he said that. Um, that when he first heard that album in the early 1960s, quote, I had found the master. Johnson's grandson, Stephen, said that Clapton told him that Johnson's playing simulated the sound of three guitars. And quote, I cannot do it. I tried it. I can't, Clapton said.
3: And he said this in 2007? Yeah. In 2007. considered the greatest guitarist of all time
4: arguably. Um, yep. Said that. Said he said he couldn't do it. I, I, he, I tried to mimic the playing of Robert Johnson. I was unable to do so. So wow, that doesn't necessarily mean Johnson was the greatest guitar player ever, but in terms of blues guitarists. Yeah. He did things that nobody else could possibly do. If Clapton can't do it, then it ain't doable. I'll, I'll just go ahead and say that. <laughs> okay. Yep. So famously Clapton's band cream would cover crossroad blues just calling their song crossroads and that that is contains the opening riff is one of the most memorable i would say in music history you guys it's up there it's great it's that fantastic riff um
3: it's just like that
4: that's exactly what it sounded like I'm 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 much like last much like last week i'm i'm almost like that guy from police academy who makes (laughs) who can mimic any sound with my, with his, my, with his voice. And I clearly sounded exactly like Eric Clapton's guitar right there.
3: <laughs> Please don't quit your day job.
4: Okay. I'm not. Um, <laughs> Clapton did actually did an album of Johnson's songs in 2004 called uh, me and Mr. Johnson. He noted that um, he probably should have done one before then, but that he was uh, intimidated to tackle it for a very long time. And that he kind of gotten over his, you know, being awestruck uh, and all that kind of stuff of Johnson and that he, he was you know glad that he had recorded that. He said that what really struck him about those early Johnson recordings and one of the things that made it so memorable to him was Johnson's vulnerability. Robert Plant said that, quote, Robert Johnson stole my heart when I was 14. Plant ended up fronting a little band that you might've heard of by the name of Led Zeppelin. Hmm they know- covered johnson's have you have you heard of them
3: uh, uh go over like one yeah uh, give me give me a couple songs by them i mean they're
4: they're they're no jerry rafferty and the beaver brown band
3: <laughs> is that the people that i gave you on the cd maybe fucker <laughs> see i got a i got a bear on the run and a beaver on my tail or something that's the song yeah, a
4: beaver in my lap and a bear on my tail, or something like that. <laughs> anyway, anyway, those Robert Plant was in this little band called Led Zeppelin that you might have um, heard of. They actually covered Johnson's "Traveling Riverside Blues." Now, their version is not an actual straight cover. It's it's kind of a tr- tribute to Johnson because they pulled some lyrics from some other songs that he did and stuff but it's it's a great song but let's take a second now and hear what inspired Mr. Plant and uh, these other fellows in in this Led Zeppelin band this Mm -hmm. is Robert Johnson with a song called Traveling Riverside Blues
0: If your man get birds Want you have your phone If your man get bothered you no know, Want you have down my bed that's what i'm talking about now but i'm going back to bed bride if i be rocking through my head
4: okay there was robert johnson's traveling riverside blues that was from uh that king of the delta blues album that was put out in 1961 huge influence on eric clapton and led zeppelin uh, also, members of Fleetwood Mac and the Rolling Stones both heard that in the early 1960s, hugely influenced by it. All, all, all of those, of course, were from England. A stateside, fellow named Robert Zimmerman some some of you might know him as Bob Dylan mm-hmm. <laughs> points to that record as having made a huge impact on
3: it. Now, see, I can um, I can absolutely see that with Bob Dylan. For someone like Fleetwood Mac, it's a little bit less obvious because I feel it, like. I feel like people say, oh, they're a huge influence on me, but like we don't know if they're talking about melodically or thematically, you know, what kind of. Sure. You know, of course,
4: you know, now, you know, early Fleetwood Mac sounds very different than the Fleetwood Mac most people are familiar with.
3: Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm more familiar with dreams, rumors.
4: Almost every, almost everybody is. But you go back to the very early Fleetwood Mac with Peter Allen Green and before Buckingham and Nix joined, and it was, you would hear the you would hear the similarities probably a lot more there. Okay. The rest of his recordings were released about ten years later in a second volume. He was inducted into the Blues and Rock and Roll Hall of fame. He was actually in the inaugural Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction class along with people like Elvis Presley. So uh, by this time, his his place in music history was was pretty well cemented. But in 1990. The complete recordings was released. It contained all twenty nine of Robert Johnson's songs in one collection, including all of the alternate takes, because he did do alternate takes of some of his songs. It was a surprising hit going double platinum. Wow. And and winning and winning a Grammy. I wonder if that is um, the longest
3: not, like Grammy to death, like posthumous
4: that that has Oh, it has to be, because he won uh, the Grammy in 1991. He died in 1938. So, fifth, what, 53 years? That has to be... I can't imagine there's been a bigger yeah. gap. Uh, it would yeah. have to be. We could look that up, but I'm, I, that's got to be right up there, definitely. Okay, so it was a surprising hit. It, it, it goes double platinum. It wins a Grammy. So, not surprisingly, once his work and legacy began generating a lot of money, there was a protracted legal dispute over his estate, because money makes people... Act stupid. Yep. Johnson had no will when he died, which kind of set this up, I guess. In 1998, the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled that a man named Claude Johnson, a retired truck driver living in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, was the illegitimate son of Robert Johnson and that he was his sole heir. Um, that, is a, that is apparently.
3: That is movie worthy information.
4: It, it is. And he was apparently, per his claim, the result of a relationship that Johnson had with a lady named Virgie Jane Smith. Most of the the surviving members of his family, the people who legit, who were legitimately related to Robert Johnson, uh, think that that's made up. Of course, maybe they're saying that because they just want money. I don't know. <laughs> there's, with, as with everything with Johnson, there, there's just a gigantic question mark. Who knows? There was apparently somebody who verified, an older person who verified, oh, yeah, yeah, now his, um, now Claude's mama, yeah, she dated Robert Johnson. That's definitely his baby. Um, uh, Annie Anderson, who wrote the, the Brother Robert book, said that she's looked at pictures of the two side by side, and she doesn't think that they look anything alike. So uh, you kind of take all that for what it's worth.
3: I mean, I think the problem stems from the fact that, you know, if you knew where he was buried, you could pull DNA and start mm-hmm. testing for this. But because right. we don't know where he's actually legitimately buried, you can't exhume the body to find out who the next akin is.
4: Sure. That, that right. That, that That's a, another variable that you have to figure into this. Okay. So if you actually, I, I'm, I'm not going to go any further into the legal dispute because I, I we could do one whole podcast just on the legal dispute over Johnson's estate. You could just Google Robert Johnson next to Ken, Robert Johnson, lawsuit, whatever. And you can, do, you can do a ton of reading on this topic if you're interested in it. You Likewise, I'm only gonna touch on this, uh, but you could read reams and reams and reams of stories about this. There's controversy over photographs that are purported to be of Johnson. Now, until the 1980s, it was believed that there were no images of Johnson, that no pictures of him existed. Three were eventually located. His half sister, Carrie Thompson, found two. One of them is known as, quote, the dime store photo, and one is called, quote, the studio portrait. The, the, quote, studio portrait is one that you may have seen of Johnson, of him. It's him wearing a suit and tie and holding a guitar. The, quote, dime store picture is the one that you may have seen of him holding a guitar and he has a cigarette pursed yep. between his lips.
3: Yeah. Yeah, we're looking at that one right now. Uh,
4: Okay, all right. Well, now, in 2008, Vanity Fair published a picture which purported to show Johnson and musician Johnny Shines. Forensic artist Lois Gibson claimed its authenticity was valid, as did the Johnson estate. Music historians, however, say that it's fake. Is it
3: this one? Can you, but, see, uh, can you see
4: what yes, I'm saying? That, uh, that, it, yes, it's the one that you're showing me. Okay. They, they so cl- whole- music
3: we will put all three of these pictures up on our Instagram, and it'll also be mm-hmm. it as the show picture. So we will post all three of those pictures on our Facebook and Instagram so you guys can check them out.
4: Cool, because music historians say that this, that, that is, in fact, not Robert Johnson, not Johnny Shines, and that th- there are some problems with the picture. Okay, so they say that the clothes that they are wearing would have indicated that The picture was taken later than Johnson lived. They also say that the two of them supposedly didn't meet until about 1937, and this Lois Gibson has pinpointed this picture as being taken in 1933 or 1934, so before Johnson and Shines even met one another. Honey Boy Edwards said that that's not Johnson in the picture, and he said that's not Shines either, so you know, go figure. The 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 estate says it is. Various people who knew him and music historians say that it is not him. Okay. So then Gibson said that there was another picture and authenticated it, which showed Johnson, his one-time wife, Coletta, and two other people. Facial recognition experts and blues historians say that the pic does in fact not show Johnson. However, this year, a third picture of Johnson was authenticated which was provided by Annie Anderson who wrote the, the brother Robert book so there's pretty universal agreement that the one that Anderson produced is a picture of Robert Johnson is it so
3: is, is it this one
4: I think so yes yeah. I, I believe I believe that's the one that that is uh, authentic was authenticated as being him so we, we've kind of come to to the end here but What do do we learn? Well, nothing. (laughs) 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 Talk for an hour and a half, we learn nothing. Because we really don't know much about Robert Johnson. It's all secondhand information. It's uh, all subject to embellishment. It's all subject to outright lies. And almost none of it can be proven. I think the only things that we we can really take from this are, you never know, and we talked about this a little bit, LD, when you and I did the Pat Dionisio episode last December. You don't necessarily have to be a huge name in your lifetime to be a huge influence on other people. You know, Robert Johnson died. I mean, he was an itinerant wandering musician. He sold about 5,000 records in his entire lifetime. More than 20 years passed before almost anybody outside of the Mississippi Delta even knew who he was. Okay. But he is one of the most influential talents in the history of music. So you can become an inspiration for people who, who come decades after your passing and become become a huge star much later. You can do that without attaining a lot of success in your lifetime. And you can also do it without making a deal with the devil. And that's about all I got.
3: All right. Well, I mean, yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for
4: nothing, Joe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so what, what do you guys make of all this?
3: You were supposed to crack the code. I gave this to you so you could find everything out about, uh, you know, Robert Johnson possibly conjure up his spirit so we could ask him some questions. I mean, and you failed, you <laughs> failed, failed
4: and, you, and you failed and you suck.
3: You know what you're getting for Christmas? What's that? A smack in the face.
4: That's what I deserve. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, you know, it's okay. So I think that my final thoughts on Mr. Johnson are that, how how much do we know about anybody from, you know, anyone who wasn't a name in society from 110 years ago, you know? Almost nothing. Almost not like, just random people. And what's interesting is, I, I sometimes bring this podcast up, uh, there was a Time Suck podcast episode on the pandemic, uh, the current pandemic, but he hearkened back to the Spanish flu of, you know. Right. Of 1919, 1918, 1920, you know, a hundred years ago.
4: The early part of last century, right.
3: And there, he read a letter from a woman that they had found about the, the Spanish influenza. And Dan actually has like a full research team behind him. And right. They They found this letter from this woman who spoke about society in Boston. And. He tried to find out more about her story and just couldn't. So we have a letter from this woman who's documenting this important period in time and we know almost nothing about her specifically. He tried to find death records, marriage certificates, any kind of public records, mm-hmm. and he just couldn't. And so, you know, for, for us to have this mystique about Robert Johnson is very interesting, but it's also kind of frustrating because he was a person who lived he was a human being who had yeah. life, who had passions, who had love, who just happened to make some recordings and somehow managed to get this Faustian uh-huh. idea attached to his life.
4: Well, and the thing is, if he'd been better known in his lifetime, we would know a little more about him. You know, Jimmy Rogers died, I think, five years before Robert Johnson did. and we, we, we have some records of him because he played – he was a known quantity. He played concerts. He put out records. There's some records about his movement and where he played and his life story. If Johnson had been in a big, there, there weren't quote media markets in 1930 something, but if he would, if he lived in New York or Chicago, maybe we would know a little bit more about him, but this was a, a, a a mostly poor wandering musician who played in clubs
3: yeah, but in, I in think the deep,
4: in the deep, high, in the deep, deep South in the early 1900s, that lends itself to us knowing almost nothing about him.
3: Yeah, but we also know more about Scott Joplin than we do about him. And that's, you know, close to, yeah. uh, close to the there, there
4: are, there are some musicians from that era who we are, are familiar with and, and know a little bit about, but they attained success in their lifetime and Robert Johnson really didn't.
3: Yeah, um, I mean we're lucky yeah. to have those twenty-seven recordings.
4: Sure, sure, and the, and the, and I can't say enough about the fact that those masters were saved. Yeah, that's amazing. That and and it's a it's a I mean it's a a gift basically to 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 music fans that were to come after Johnson died. Yeah. So that's all I got.
3: All right. Well, good episode. Yeah. Good episode. So I'll pass on our social stuff. So if you guys want to check out those photos or anything we talk about. You know, feel free to hop over there. If you think that we're doing an awesome job and you would like to give us money, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter is rock and roll LT, Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT, Facebook, rock and roll heaven pod, still not saying our website. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven at gmail.com. And please uh, check out the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at uh, rock and roll All that will be in the show notes if I said it too fast. I really want to thank you guys for checking us out this week. Check us out next week where we're gonna be talking about Amy Winehouse, which will continue our 27 Club series. And that's really all I've got. So thanks guys and we'll check you out. Hey. Next week.
4: Bye. I'm
3: gonna say goodbye now. Goodbye now. <laughs>
4: thank you. Um first of all, yeah, thanks for listening to Rock and Roll Heaven obviously we can't give you the the entire story of robert johnson's life because most of it's made up But <laughs> read, read about him and listen yeah. to his music and all that kind of stuff so we're going to listen with to, as we go out to one of his best known songs and uh it's been covered by numerous artists over the years this is a song called sweet home chicago and we're gonna yeah. say goodbye from rock and roll heaven
0: If walking around your friend, boy, he's going to get you a business, a trick. But well, I'm crying, baby, honey, don't you want to go? Back to the land of California...